Um, so if I, um, if I asked you uh, what or, or whom do you love more than anything else, what do you think you would say? Um, now, if you're a Christian, many of us Christians this morning, you might be thinking, Steve, is this some kind of trick question? Because, you know, you know the right answer to the question is that God is the most important. But, but I'd ask you not just to think biblically about what the right answer is, but to try and think hmm, functionally about what the actual answer is for you. Uh, what functionally is the number one priority in your life? What do you have to have? What's most important to you, actually, functionally? Um, as we've gone through these chapters in, in Genesis uh, and the life of Abraham on and off over the, the last little while, we, we've seen that actually that's been different things for different people, hasn't it? So for Lot's wife, if you remember, for example, in, in chapter 19, it was the city life of Sodom with all of its trappings, that she, she loved. She couldn't bear to leave behind. Um, for Lot's daughters, at the end of chapter 19, it was their desire for children that caused them to take uh, depraved steps in order to get what they had to have. Um, even for Abraham himself, you know, a man of faith, we've seen that his desire to protect his own skin has caused him to fail to trust God and be prepared to hand over his wife, in fact, in, instead. His failure to trust his safety to God caused him to take matters into his own hands instead. So even for a man who, who loved God, um, there, there was this pressure point, wasn't there? There was this area of his life in which he couldn't trust God, in which God wasn't enough, as it were, to which he just couldn't say, you know, like the psalmist says, to you, O Lord... I, I lift up my soul. My God, in you I trust. He, he could say that about many areas in his life, I'm sure. But when it came to his personal safety, that was just something that it seemed he couldn't trust God with. Uh, and of course, as we've seen uh, that in the life of Abraham, um, so we recognize that it's often the same in our own lives too, isn't it? The Christian life is a life of, of faith, a life of trust in God's promises, and so obedience to God's word. But we struggle daily with that, don't we? And, and particularly in, in certain areas of our lives, certain areas that we make idols of, uh, and, and so have a special attachment to, uh, and find it so hard to trust God in. I, I've I've wondered during this pandemic whether for some of us it's exposed the fact that, that our health is something that we've struggled to trust God for. What is it for you, do you think? What is it for you? Um, but of course, the other thing that we've seen in the life of Abraham is that although we struggle with this, actually the, the Christian life should be a life of progress in this area, of a life of growing trust. And, and we've seen that it's in the fires, as it were, of adversity that God deepens our trust in him. That's, what's God's been, that's what God's been doing in Abraham's life, isn't it? He's been knocking off his rough edges, as it were. He's been refining and deepening his trust through times of adversity, times of testing. And, and actually now, I think what we see here in this chapter is, is maybe the ultimate test of a man who loves his God. So let's have a look at this chapter and, and see how he gets on. Have a, have a look at verses 1 to 2 with me, which I've called a baffling 
instruction. Because by the time we get to, to this point in Abram's life, you know, things, things eventually look to have settled down a bit. For, for Abraham, don't they? Life sort of looks complete at last. You know, it's been 25 years since, since God promised him a son. And, and, and over that 25-year period, life has been a bit of a roller coaster for him, hasn't it? But, but now, at, at long last, and, and to their utter amazement, God has delivered on his promise. He's, he's delivered on his word. And the promised son has arrived. And, and he's kind of growing up nicely. Uh, must have been a great thought, you know, for a guy of 100 years old, wasn't it? Um, you know, great. God's, God's finished with me now. You know, I can, I can sit back, I can enjoy what's left of the, the rest of my life. This 25-year this period of faith testing is, is finally over and it's the turn of the next generation now. You know, it's Isaac's turn to sort of pick up the baton of faith. Um, maybe you recognize the thinking. <laughs> uh, I, I think we can get to the stage in our lives, can't we, where, where we think, well, I've, I've had my testings. You know, I've had my battles. I've fought my fight. You know, God, God can't have much else left for me now at, at my stage of life. He's kind of moved on to the, to the next generation. But then we read, look, verse 1, after these things. In other words, after all the other tests of the, the previous chapters, after the last 10 years or so of kind of peace and quiet as, as, as Isaac has grown up a bit, after all that, as, as Abraham was enjoying his kind of twilight years, God tested Abraham. Do you see, um, there's no such thing really, is there, as, as kind of spiritual retirement, uh, if you like. Maybe you remember the, the, the teaching of the apostles to the, the, the churches in, in Lystra and Iconium and, and Antioch in, in Acts 14, who, who taught that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that's the, king, that's the, the, the Christian life, isn't it? God refines our faith in the fires of adversity. And that includes, friends, even into our twilight years, where actually if Abraham is, is anything to go by, the tests can be even tougher. And that's what's happening here, isn't it? It's another test for Abraham, and, and it's out of the blue. But, but it's really important for, for what follows next that we understand clearly that this is a test. Okay, The writer puts that word in there so that we will know that it's a test in advance of what he then goes on to tell us. And, that, and that's important because the story that now unfolds of, of what God wants Abraham to do is a shocking story, isn't it? And so we need to know in advance that this is a test. Do, do you see? Um, God is not callous. He, he doesn't play cruel games with people for his amusement. Right? He has no intention of ending Isaac's life. It's a test. God's not capricious. He's not, he's not fickle. You know, he doesn't promise him a son one minute and then take him away the next. He, he acts with purpose. And his purpose here is to test Abraham in order to, to further deepen his trust. Okay, it's a test. But, verse 2, what a test it is. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And we, you know, we can probably imagine, can't we, the, uh, the horror that, that Abraham must have felt to, to receive a command like that from, from God. Abraham's made his fair share of burnt offerings. 
over the years. He, he knows what's involved in, in doing that. And now he's being told to do that with his own son. Can, can you imagine that? Um, can, can you imagine what, what he's thinking? He's, he's a father. He's thinking, no, Lord, no, take, take my life instead. You know, anything but this. This is my son. Can, can you imagine the questions that are racing through his mind? I mean, what about the promise? What about the promise to make a nation through Isaac and, and to bring blessing to the whole world through him? And, and then what about the morality of it? This is wrong. Did you see? It's horror. It's, it's, it's heartbreak. It's, it's confusion. Lord, this doesn't make sense. This isn't who you are. Do, do you remember back in chapter 18 when, when Abram was interceding for Sodom? You remember that? He did so, didn't he? On the basis of God's character. Will, will you sweep away the righteous with the, with the wicked? Far be it from you to, to do such a thing. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You see, Abraham knows what God is like. That, that God will do what is right. And so this isn't only a, a horrifying instruction. It's a baffling one. It's a confusing one. It, it doesn't seem to be consistent with who God is, what, what he's like. It, it, he, he seems to have promised to give him a son one minute. And, and, and then he's taking him away the next. And of course, friends, although we have been told that this is a test, uh, Abraham hasn't yet. So it's, it's horrifying. It's baffling. And, and, and we might be thinking to ourselves, well, um, how is Abraham supposed to trust a God like that? Um, but that's just the point, isn't it? This is precisely what Abraham is being called to do, isn't it? He's being called to trust the God whose instructions may be baffling or inexplicable. And friends, that's what we're called to do too, isn't it? Because we occupy the same world as as Abraham. We're a bit later on in history, but it's the same world. And, And so we too are to trust in the God whose ways don't always seem to make sense to us. We're called to trust in the God who allows periods of of settled happiness to be turned upside down by periods of adversity and periods of trial. We're called to trust in the God whose plans and purposes seem to be clear to us one minute and then completely hidden from us the next. And maybe we think, well, who could do that? What what kind of a person could trust in a God who who said to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering? What kind of a person could trust in a God who who would say that? A stupid person? (laughs) A gullible person? Well, no. You see, this baffling instruction from God comes, verse 1, after these things. In other words, after more than a quarter of a century of God making promises to Abraham and then delivering on his promises. A quarter of a century of of God proving to Abraham that he is faithful to his word. And so Abraham can take him at his word. Do you you see this this ultimate test, if you like, comes at the end of a lifetime of of testing and and trusting. It's the climax of more than a quarter of a century of God testing Abraham's faith in the fires of adversity and proving to him over and over and over again that he is utterly to be trusted, no matter what. Abraham knows God. He he spent decades walking in his ways through the, the trials and the hardships, the failures 
of life. And God has been shaping him through that. And, and that means that whilst the thought of what God appears to be calling him to do is utterly horrifying and, and baffling to him, he, he can't imagine why God would want him to do this. Yet he knows without question that is, God can be trusted even in this kind of a situation. Um, I, I spent a bit of time pondering uh, in the week whether I could trust God if he said something like that to me. Uh, maybe you've thought the same now. Um, if, if you haven't done before, you probably are now. <laughs> um, and maybe we're thinking, I, I could never do that. I, I could never cope with that. And, and, and it may be that you couldn't. Maybe that I couldn't. But, but, but if we couldn't cope with something as radically demanding, it seems to me that might well be because we, we've never really put ourselves in situations where our faith can be tested. Um, we, we've noticed, haven't we, um, in, in recent years, there's a growing hostility in our society towards biblical Christianity. Um, so, so it's not just that the... It's not just that the world doesn't affirm our beliefs anymore, but that they're increasingly intolerant of them. And, and the church is struggling to come to terms with that, aren't we? And I'm sure that at least part of the reason that we're struggling to come to terms with that is because it makes us fearful. And it makes us fearful because, frankly, we've been so closeted and cosy, so safely surrounded in a kind of comfort zone of nominal Christianity that we've never had to exercise costly faith. We've never had it truly stretched. And, and whilst we might feel somewhat relieved about that, maybe it's had the effect of keeping our trust in God still at a, a pretty baby level. Maybe for some of us, we've, we've always kept our heads down at work or, or at school because we fear having to cope with our faith being public knowledge. Maybe for others of us, we've, we've spent our Christian lives always on the edge of the church, never giving God our all, so never having our faith tested and stretched. And what I think we see here in, in this chapter is that it's those who give their all to God, that are the precisely the ones that he will, he will take more deeply into himself uh, as we're regularly flung into greater trust and greater dependency through the fires of adversity. And, and it's why, I, I think... That this increasing rejection of Christianity that we're, we're seeing around us and so intolerance of, of Christians certainly will not be good for our country, but it probably will be good for the church. A church that's become perhaps somewhat flabby in its faith. So what kind of a person could trust a God who says this? Well, a person whose trust in the utterly trustworthy God has been deepened and strengthened in the fires of adversity. That's what we see in Abraham, isn't it? That may be a challenge for us. So there's a, a baffling instruction. Um, have a look now at verses 3 to 10, uh, and what I've called an obedient response. Have a look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So the first thing there look, is that Abraham obeys, doesn't he? You know, he's, he's got to be sick to his stomach. He's got to be in emotional torment. He's got to be in the depths of despair. And, and yet he obeys. 
And the second thing, notice, is that he obeys immediately. So there's no delay, there's no questioning, there's no prevarication, there's no excuses. He simply gets up early the next day, he saddles up his donkey, he collects a couple of servants, he cuts the necessary wood for the the burnt offering, and he goes where God tells him to go. And then third thing, he obeys, look, confidently. So, So having arrived at the appropriate place, notice what he says to his servants, verse Uh, Five, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Did you see that? I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again or come back to you. And I I think he's pretty confident there that both of them will be returning, isn't he? He could easily have just said to the servants, you know, you stay there. We're going over to worship and and left it at that. But I, I think he wants us to see that that. Abraham envisages that both of them will return. That that in some way that he can't yet see, God will provide a way out. He he knows, of course, that this sort of flies in the face of of the evidence, but he knows that God can be trusted. And so that's what he's going to keep on doing. He's going to keep on trusting him. He's learned through the fires of adversity, previous adversity, that God can be trusted. He's learned what a mess he's caused when when he tries to take matters into his own hands and and not trust God. And so even in such an extreme situation as this, even with the very life of his son at stake, he's going to trust God. Friends, can you see how far Abraham has come? (laughs) You know, in the past, he's put his own safety above obedience to God, hasn't he? He's lied about his relationship to his wife, in order to save his skin. But now he's going to trust God, not just with his own safety, but even with the safety of his his precious son. In the past, he's put God's promise above obedience to God. He's, He's tried to gain God's promise through sleeping with Hagar. But now he's going to trust God, even though it looks like waving goodbye to God's promise. You see, for, for Abraham, there's, there's nothing now that comes above his trust in God and so his obedience to God. Even though he values both of those other things so highly, he values God himself more. So, so he won't now make an idol out of personal safety. He won't now make an idol even out of God's promise. This time, God himself is, is going to be his number one. He's trusting God first. And and he's trusting that if he puts God first, even above his son and above God's promises, well, those other things will will fall into place. And and so, with his, I'm sure, with his emotions in in turmoil, but with his trust, and so therefore his obedience in in God alone, Abraham, verse 6, loads up his son with the wood for the fire, He takes the knife that he'd used for killing the sacrifice and together they walk up the hill. The the son carrying on his own back the wood that was to be the means of his death. They they seem to walk in silence until eventually, look, verse 7, Isaac speaks. He knows that something's wrong. He says, the fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And of course, Abraham knows what he has to do when he gets to the top of the hill. 
And I'm sure that as he's, as he's walking there in, in, in silent confusion, torment, I'm sure that thought is very much at the front of his mind. But, but don't you detect an, another hint of hope there, a trust in the God who will do what is right. Verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Do you think that explanation would have satisfied Isaac? I, I don't think so. If, if Isaac was still a little boy, you know, perhaps it would. But I, I think Isaac is older than that now, that the phrase in verse 1 after these things suggests that, you know, actually some time, as some years have elapsed since, since he was a little boy, since he was weaned. Actually, the fact that he's, he can be loaded up with firewood, you know, uh, verse 6, and, and then carry it uh, up the hill, uh, suggests I, I think he's at least a teenager by now. Do, do you think Isaac didn't know that something was amiss here? Uh, it seems inconceivable to me that he didn't. But, verse 8, look, they walk on together. Isaac trusts his father. And, and even as the, the pace of the story, do you notice that? The pace of the story slows down in verse 9. We get this kind of um, this excruciating sort of moment-by-moment moment account of building the altar and laying the wood and tying up his son and placing him on the altar and reaching out his hand and taking the knife to, to slaughter his son. Even as, as, as Abraham, through the tears and the confusion, goes through these steps in, in perfect obedience... We see Isaac as well, you know, frightened, confused himself, I'm sure, but with absolute trust, I think, in his father. And so consenting to what has happened. I don't think there's any way that Abraham could have done what he'd done without Isaac's consent and cooperation. Isaac was clearly the stronger, who carried the wood, the younger, the, the fitter. There's no way Abraham could have got Isaac to this point without his agreement and his help. Which is amazing, isn't it? Because it tells us that apparently Isaac was prepared to obey his father just like his father was prepared to obey God. They would both do so no matter what the cost. I, I, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe Abraham had spoken to Isaac. Maybe he told him about his, his amazing birth, his, the, the promises that were going to be uh, fulfilled uh, in him. Uh, such that not only Abraham but Isaac as well were, were both going ahead of this, reasoning, you know, as the, the, the writer to Hebrews puts it, that, that God could even raise him from the dead if, if needs be. Who knows the, the conversations that, that took place and led to this point. But friends, what does seem to be the case is that Abraham's faith was alive in his son as well. They were both consenting together to trust God no matter what. And friends, of course, <laughs> this is pointing us forward, isn't it? It's, it's pointing us forward to another young man walking up a hill to his death, carrying on his own back the wood that would be the means of his death. A young man who too did this silently and willingly and without complaint, trusting implicitly in his father. And so obeying him, even to the point of death. I wonder if you can hear the echoes of Isaiah 53's sort of description of Jesus 
Yeah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We're being pointed to the cross here, aren't we? As the Father and the Son are, are both willingly consenting together to the sacrificial death of the Son. But it's not the end of the story, is it? <laughs> Let's move from an obedient response to a divine provision in verses 11 to 19. Because this time, as the sacrifice is about to be made, a voice from heaven uh, is heard. Verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And, and actually with that it was all over, wasn't it? The test was passed. A, a substitute sacrifice was provided. Look, verse uh, 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up. As a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What an outcome (laughs) that is. And what a relief for for Abraham and Isaac. God will provide the sacrifice. Abraham had said to, to Isaac, hadn't he? And he's done just that. Hasn't he? Their trust in God was well placed, wasn't it? The God who tests is also the God who provides. And, and you see, friends, the, the fact is that for a relationship with God, a sacrifice is needed. Our, our sin, our, our rebellion against God, our determination to live for ourselves and not for him is such a serious thing. That a a just God, a holy God, just can't ignore it. But sin must be punished. And the punishment for sin is death. And yet here, God himself provides a substitute, a ram to die in the place of a man. And friends, again, we're being pointed forward, aren't we? In fact, you can tell we're being pointed forward here because those promises made to Abraham in chapter 12. Do you remember those promises? And then reiterated and expanded upon in the chapters that have followed. We've seen them, haven't we? Reiterated again in chapter 15 and chapter 17 and chapter 21. Well, they're being reiterated and expanded upon again in in these verses, aren't they? Do, Do you remember them? Promises about land and people and blessing. Well, notice how God underpins those promises now by swearing an oath. Look in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed 
my voice. Do you see? So not only will Abraham's descendants be more numerous, uh, verse 17, than the stars of heaven, something God has promised before, but now they're going to be more numerous than the sand on the seashore. So it's it's like God says to, to, to Abraham, you know, Abraham, grab a handful of sand. You know, count the grains <laughs> and then do that with every handful of sand on the whole beach. And, and that's how numerous your descendants will be. That's how many people will come from the son that you were willing to give up for me. And of course, God isn't talking about Abraham's physical descendants there, is he? But about his spiritual descendants. As, as Paul uh, reminds us in, in the New Testament, in, in Romans 9, not, not all the, are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. It's, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. Or, or he puts it in Galatians 3, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, the, these promises, they're about far more than God giving Abraham and, uh, uh, and Isaac physical descendants, but giving them spiritual descendants. And so how have those promises been fulfilled? Well, it's because of what took place on this same mountain 2,000 years later and involving another son and his father. If you glance back to verse 2, look, you'll see that this episode has taken place in the land of Moriah. And, And the land of Moriah is what would become the area in which Jerusalem was built. Indeed, Mount Moriah was to become the place on which the temple would be built. The the place where God would provide the means by which his people could have their sins atoned for through the sacrifice of an animal. And of course, that's the same region, isn't it? Where another father would lead his only son, the son whom he loved, to have placed upon his back the wood that would become the means of his death. As, as beaten and, and tired, he, he climbed a hill to the place of execution where willingly and without complaint he was sacrificed on a cross. Uh, only this time, friends, there was no voice from heaven to call it all off. There was no substitute for Jesus because he was the substitute. There was just the death of the son and there was the broken heart of the father. And and why? So that the sin, which is so offensive to God and so destructive to us, could be dealt with once and for all. Do you see, friends? See how even here in Genesis 22, right at the beginning of the Bible, we're being pointed forward, we're being given a glimpse, a foreshadowing, of what God must do if there is going to be any hope for us. Friends, forgiveness, salvation is not cheap. And what God did, he would never have called Abraham to do. But he did himself because there was no other way. No other way than for the father and the son to have willingly agreed together to this substitutionary sacrifice that would, would, would uh, reconcile rebellious people to a holy God. And friends, can you see how much this cost the Father? Every bit as much as it cost the Son. 
If you think it was hard for Abraham to, to do this to, to his son, do you think for a moment it was any less hard for God to do it to, to his son? Of course not. How, how could it be? Friends, your salvation and mine cost him dearly. And so how can our response be any different to Abraham's, which was to serve him totally? That's the application here, I think, isn't it? As as we're going to sing now before we come to the communion table. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for challenging us not to be flabby in our faith, but to allow you to strengthen and deepen it through the fires of adversity so that, so that we might increasingly obey you, even, even when your ways seem hard for us to understand or accept and and thank you too that that even back here in these opening chapters of the bible we're given a glimpse of the cross and and of the enormous cost of our sin we thank you that what you didn't call abraham to go through with you did go through with yourself giving up your only son as a as a sacrifice of atonement, a substitute to bear away the sins of the world. Father, we're so sorry that there was no other way. But we thank you so much that you went through this for us. And so please, would our response be the worship of our whole lives, lived in obedience and trust. And this we pray in Jesus' name.